Welcome to Insights, a production of JP Morgan Asset Management. Insights is an audio podcast that provides perspective on the opportunities and uncertainties facing investors today. Today's episode is The Year of Corn Opportunistic versus Late Cycle Real Estate Investing, and it is for institutional and professional investors. Hi. My name is Declan Canavan. I am a client portfolio manager in the alternatives business here in Europe. I am joined today by Brian Nottage, who's head of separate account research for real estate in Americas, Kenneth Tsang, head of research, real estate, Asia Pacific, and with me here in London is Joe Valenti, head of research, real estate, Europe. Well, welcome to Insights. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Gentlemen, I think it makes sense to start from the ground up. Maybe, Kenneth, if I could ask you firstly, where are we in the real estate investment cycle? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, in Asia, the cycle are basically not in sync with each other, I mean, within the, um, the Asian country. In general, the Hong Kong and some first tier China city are kind of in the late cycle for real estate investment. And, you know, Australia, Japan, South Korea is kind of in the mid-cycle and there's still some room to grow. Singapore has been uh, declining in the past two years, and we are expecting it to, um, to come up from a cycle and then start to grow again um, soon within the, in the near term. Well, I think certainly so far as Europe is concerned, the first thing to say is that the U.S. really stole a march on both Europe and, and Asia by repricing first and repricing very, very quickly. Europe certainly lagged that process. So at the very least, we're three, four years behind the U.S., but even within Europe, there is a distinct lag with the UK leading that process, both in terms of investment activity and pricing, followed by Germany and France and Italy being sort of lagged by a third or two years, if you like. Yeah. So in the US, I mean, the data are really clear about how you define the real estate cycle. It really has always historically been coterminous with the economic cycle. So I like to tell clients who ask me, how long do we have to go in the real estate cycle? What's your view of the economic cycle? Those two will uh, correspond. And if I look at that, I think there's a lot of talk about whether we get more growth, whether we get reflation. But fundamentally, uh, I think the view of us being relatively late cycle is consensus. It's my view. Uh, and it means that I think the real estate cycle is later in its later years, at least for the U.S. So just so I'm clear, so you, and do we feel that in, in Europe and we feel that in Asia, that the economic cycle is the primary driver of the real estate cycle? Well, it hasn't been for the last 10 years. I think for the last 10 years, it's been, most of the globe has been in recession or certainly a very low growth economy. And yet, if you look at the investment cycle, it's been driven by global capital, by the weight of capital coming out of primarily Asia as much as anywhere else. It's that which has driven pricing as much as rental growth, um, which is the result of economies recovering and doing slightly better. So I don't think it's whilst the economic cycle is, is fundamentally important, it doesn't explain investment activity over the course of post-2008 period. So I'm hearing, uh, Brian, from your comments that the economic cycle is of paramount importance in the U.S., but Joe makes the point that flows of capital are quite important here in Europe. In Kenneth, in the Asian experience, is it about flows of capital? Well, in historically, most of the time, the rest of the cycle is quite highly correlated to the economic cycles. But in the last five to seven years' time, I think there, there has been also driven by as others have uh, mentioned, the, uh, the flow of uh, incoming capital, which has been a, a big push on uh, pricing, as well as the, um, the local dynamics, like the supply 
uh, is, is really uh, influencing on how the market is, is performing. A good example would be in Japan. I think the um, economic growth has been slowing down in the last two years. But the performance of, for example, the office sector has been performing quite strong. It's basically very high occupancy rate. But at the same time, the really limited supply. So, so even though the economy has been slowing down, the um, the performance of uh, office pricing has been uh, performing uh, fairly well. Yeah, and, and I'll just clarify when I say sort of how they go together. Certainly in the U.S. and I think probably globally, capital flows are pro-cyclical. So the reality is that when it all ends. Um, capital flows are going to dry up. The weight of capital will absolutely go the other way, as we saw in 2008 and nine. And we've even seen, when we looked last year, at the beginning of last year, in early 2016, when there were genuine concerns with the stock market and the bond market signaling that we might go into a recession, we saw capital flows that had been absolutely torrid, absolutely dry up initially. And we've seen that come back. But again, the reason those things dried up was because people were saying, I can't underwrite NOI growth. So I think the capital flows follow people's optimism, not the other way around. I think that's very clear. And just, Brian, one other comment. Do you see the actual synchronicity of regions increasing going forward? I think the question is, I mean, you know, there has historically been sort of other economies have drafted off the U.S. more. So if the U.S. went into a recession, it would have been harder for other economies not to be in a recession that's, I think, less true today, where certainly it was the case that Europe was in recession just a few years ago and the U.S. is not in recession. So I think that there's clearly less synchronicity among the economies. I do wonder, though, and we see it in emerging market real estate, whether if the U.S. were to fundamentally fall into recession, whether you could have Europe and Asia bucking that trend. I think that's the fundamental question. That's an important point, and I certainly agree with virtually everything that Brian has said. I think that for two specific reasons. Firstly, if you look at the period post-2000, the economies of the US, Europe and Asia were basically doing the same thing. They were growing at healthy rates of 2 3% or 7% whatever it was in China. And then 2008 came along and they all went into, a, into something of a recession. So those economies were doing the same thing. So it's very difficult to actually be, then begin to argue about the potential for diversification in that sort of environment. But secondly, and more importantly, pricing in, in the real estate market was driven primarily by yield compression, by compression of cap rates. And that was a global phenomenon. It's tied back to um, the weight of capital. Now, if you go forwards, certainly over the last two years, we are now beginning to see economies doing something slightly different, which is good in terms of diversification. And more importantly, pricing is being driven increasingly by rental growth, which is a function of local supply demand. So rental growth in Berlin will be very different from rental growth in Singapore and so on and so forth, because they have a different balance of uh, supply and demand. Therefore, going forwards, you would expect to see increasing potential for diversification because there is greater diversity in those markets. Kenneth, in your previous answer, you mentioned uh, Japan as an interesting market. Are there any other regions that you would like to point to as a, a very strong upside scenario and also perhaps any markets that you feel are overinflated and would represent a downside risk to a portfolio investment? I think the good market would be like Australia, when the um, economy is expected to pick up soon. Uh, it, has, it has saw some slow um, development in the last two years, but we're expecting the economy is uh, improving, domestic demand is strong. And particularly, I think the, the story of Australia is kind of a, um, a, a tale of the two regions. So you can, if the eastern seaboard, like in Melbourne and Sydney, is actually seeing you know good expansions in the servicing 
industry, even with a, with a time when the overall Australian economy was like slowing down. So those two cities actually seeing a fairly good growth in um in the service sector, which is really benefiting the, the office sector and somehow you know uh, overflow to the, the retail and logistics sector as well. So that is one of the, the really good market we are have been uh, targeting on. Other market like you know uh, Japan is a comfortable story. It is like you know first stable growth is the economy is going to pick up. Monetary policy is still like, very supportive. Like even I think in the near to medium term. And for core investment, that is a good kind of a target for core investors going forward. And on the other side, I think some of the market is, uh, I think the pricing is really full, like in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong office market, retail markets, everything, I think because of the the strong yield compressions in the past few years, and limited supply has really pushed up at rent to be basically, you know, among the top of the world. I think going forward, these two, I mean, the Hong Kong market is potentially seeing a bit more um, risk in terms of like, a potential bigger corrections going forward in in the office and in the retail sector. I'm talking about the, the high street retail, but in general, the suburban retail is still doing, um, we're expecting it's, it's going to perform all right. I think the other market, like you know, China, is kind of a managed economy. Growth is slowing down, but you know, we're seeing still a fairly good growth. But the structure of the economy is still moving. It's still changing. Like you know, more, it's more service driven. It's more you know, a professional service and you know, financial service driven. So even with the um, what we have seen in the last two years, when the economy is slowing down in China, we we still seeing very good growth in the business sector, which is like driving uh, some good demand for the office sector and the retail sector. So I think China, but of course, you know, the overall, the risk is higher in China. So I think China is interesting market to look at, but it may not be the top priority for core investment. Uh, it probably be more of an opportunistic type style of investment going forward. And Brian, let's jump to the US. Is it still a bi-coastal opportunity in the US? Or are you seeing more opportunities in the hinterland of the US? Yeah, I don't know if I'd say hinterlands, but I think that so a couple of things that I think are defining the current environment. First, you're just seeing economic growth largely everywhere and being more uniform. So you don't have the same extent of sort of hot markets and cold markets. So one great example is that if you looked at the broad Sun Belt, so this is the region that goes from, say, North Carolina through Texas, what you're seeing is a lot of growth, in fact, more growth than the rest of the country, and importantly, unlike other cycles, because everyone is scared these places overbuild, you're seeing relatively less supply. The irony is you have more supply in places that people view as safe, and those are the bi-coastal markets. So if you looked at the office or apartment sector in San Francisco or New York City or Washington, D.C., you would actually find much more supply than you would find in a place like Atlanta, for instance, which is very unusual. So there is a difference. I'd also say that if you look at some of the coastal markets, you're finding, I think, a lot of divergence. So you have a place like San Francisco that has been the hottest market, but that's slowing down. Um, and I think what's happening is that you know, trees don't grow to the sky. You're seeing pushbacks on rents. You're seeing, I think, some softness in tech demand. And it's a volatile market where there is a lot of supply going on. And I think that that is a risk. You look at Washington, D.C., and, and offshore capital loves Washington, D.C. There is an appearance of some recovery, but we're seeing prices rise more than that to offset it. So I think for us, that's a very difficult place to invest, even though we're a little bit more positive. I think the, more in, the most interesting coastal market is New York because people don't realize just how bad New York has been 
over the last two years. It has really been a weak market, and it's been weak because finance has been weak. And so we view New York as the most interesting opportunity. And I'll just give you a simple example. Rough terms, New York office buildings in midtown Manhattan have not risen in price since about 2014, as reflected by all the bad things happening in finance and law. Yet there is no sector and no market more levered to whatever Trump trade there is in New York City. To the extent that we get deregulation of finance, to the extent that we get net interest margins rising, when you combine the fact that prices haven't moved much, the fact that we're levered to this trade, and the fact as well that we're actually on the ground seeing from our asset managers and a lot of new leasing, that to us, I think, is an interesting opportunity. That's very interesting. I think here in Europe, I think all roads seem to lead to Berlin. (laughs) And we've seen that in history as well. But I'm wondering, Joe, is there a story in Germany outside Berlin interesting? And in a broader European context, is there an investment thesis that we're seeing evolving? The story in Berlin is an interesting one. It's a very, very interesting market. I think it's worth saying that until about probably 10 years ago, no investor would go anywhere near Berlin. They would shy away from Berlin and all its pains for all sorts of different reasons. Suddenly, investors have found Berlin. And the reason is, one, demographics, very strong demographics in terms of population growth. It's one of the few places in uh, in Germany that's actually growing. It's attracting young kids back into the high-tech sector. It suddenly had the capital and, and so on and so forth. The interesting point, I think, is that even though uh, some people would actually look at Berlin now and say it's, it's, it's overpriced, the fundamental point is rental levels in Berlin are probably a third of what they are in London, a third of what they are in Munich. So it has a very strong catch-up story. And that's one of the reasons why we are overweight in certainly Berlin and to a less extent Frankfurt. But your point about the five or six major markets in Germany, it's interesting because once you leave Frankfurt, Berlin, Munich, Stuttgart doesn't get any global capital. Dusseldorf doesn't get any global capital. They're domestic markets, they're big markets. You know, Cologne is a, it's a major city, but yet it's never attracted. It's, pricing has never been pushed by global capital. So it's become less price intensive or competitive. And that becomes very, very interesting from our point of view, because there is, I think, considerable room yet to grow in those particular markets. The risks are there. There are different sorts of risks. But nevertheless, markets which are non-prime but attractive to domestic institutions are very, very attractive to us. The second, I suppose, if we turn to the underweight category, well, we don't have to go much further than where we are today, in central London. I think we are very cool on central London. We have been for some considerable time. It's got nothing to do with Brexit. It's, it's called increasing supply. The City of London is likely to see a very significant rise in the pipeline coming through over the course of the next 12, 24 months. We expect rents to fall as a result of that, possibly 15 to 20 percent, that, sort of, uh, that sort of area. But there will come a time where if rents are falling below 60 pounds per square foot and if yields are moving towards 5 percent and, and over, that means capital values are 1,000 pounds a square foot. 1,000 pounds a square foot, I'm a buyer. I'm not a buyer as yet, but things could change very, very quickly. So I think we've mentioned the core opportunities. I'm wondering, as I, when I speak to investors, they often ask about 
taking potentially more risk in their portfolio. Would you like to comment on your regions, maybe kind of starting with you, about if there was a, an area or in a, a sector that investors could indeed take more risk and hopefully achieve a higher upside, where would you counsel them to look? In Asia, certainly the, we have seen a, a wave of capitals going into the opportunistic investment over the last five to seven years. Many of these investments are now being unwind from the previous value-add fund or opportunistic fund, and they become like a lot more available for core investment in the market. So I think core investment is, is certainly one of the key drivers in terms of transactions going forward in Asia. In terms of value, for other, other high-risk strategies, Value-add would be interesting in some of the uh, cities like, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, I mean, Korean in the in office sector, you know, go looking into kind of a sub-rental levels uh, assets, which like you know, potentially you can you can change the tenant mix to get it a higher rent. I think that is one of the most obvious play in the region. And likewise, the retail, suburban retail in some of these developed economies, again, like in Hong Kong, Singapore, Korea is good, but like, it's, it's difficult to get access into. Um, the, the deal flow is pretty thin because most of the retail assets is being hold, held by and the Chaebol, the, uh, the big conglomerate in Korea. And that would be a value-add play for uh, for these countries. And in terms of opportunistic, I think in general, China and some of the Southeast Asian economies like, you know, uh, Philippines, in, Indonesia, Malaysia, can in, arguably will see some like opportunity going forward, but it's really, really have to work hard on finding the right investment at the SS levels to go forward. I think the, the broad you know, cycle play-driven uh, opportunistic investment is uh, is less obvious uh, for Asia right now. And Brian, in the U.S., I think you mentioned North Carolina to Texas. So I'd, I'd start with, um, so if you talk about opportunistic sort of going up the risk spectrum, just a, a, an interesting capital note. So if you looked in 2007, what we saw was that while a greater share of capital went to opportunistic, you also had a lot of capital going to core. So sort of everything was had a ton of capital. In 2017, we literally have surging allocations to opportunistic and falling net flows to core. It is an extraordinary sort of combination that is very unusual for later in a cycle because everyone's looking for high returns. The unfortunate thing is that I can tell you that there are not 20% returns in the U.S. There are not. So people who show proforma 20s, are, they're not proforma 20s, particularly as lending rates have gone up. And what that means is that you have extraordinarily high leverage, both from a financial perspective and an economic perspective to make these proformas work. And if you believe that we're going to have a cycle that lasts for another five years, I guess that can kind of work. But if you have a very, very sort of leasing-focused, long lead time strategy, I think that's a very, very bad idea. Um, and it's also, again, the most crowded part of the capital stack. There is more money chasing opportunistic and value add by far than there is core. So I think that people, I think, need to be realistic about what returns they can get. And I think they have to be cognizant that there are certain risks that are, frankly, harder to execute than others. So for instance, we would look in terms of higher risk strategies at more moderately high risk strategies that have leasing risk that is near-term and identifiable. So to just give you an example, industrial's hot. You can build a warehouse pretty quickly. You can have some visibility on demand. We would say building a warehouse in most markets makes a lot of sense. Apartments is a little trickier now, but you can sort of also see the rationale for that, particularly because in a downturn, there's always a rent you can rent an apartment building at. 
Um, a lot of these op funds are doing speculative office development or speculative redevelopment. I think that's a terrible idea because in a recession, there is no rent that will rent an office building. I'm exaggerating, but that's kind of the point. So I think that the opportunistic set is overbid, and I think that there aren't that many things. The irony is the most underbid sector of the U.S. real estate capital stack is the core space. That is where you're seeing yields that are still high and you have thinner bidder pools. So I think opportunistic core, if you wanted to call it that way, is what's most interesting. But if people are obsessed with getting a pro forma 20, uh, they're not going to do that. So you know that's kind of where I see the space. I'll just also note, there is a little bit of an inconsistency with saying we're going to execute a very complex opportunistic strategy because we think the core market is fundamentally overpriced and is set for a tumble, but we're going to exit, obviously, into that core market. That is literally sort of where we are in the opportunistic space. So again, I think that near-term risk that's visible and short-term, I think, makes sense. But again, I think that these sort of fanciful pro formas were disappointing in 2007, and I think they're going to be disappointing again today. And Joe, I'm interested because we've talked up until now about the UK and Germany. Um, any other markets out there that represent um, a real investment thesis if investors are prepared to take on more risk? Well, it depends what sort of capital and what sort of investor, because uh, if we look at um, certain types of investors, they're quite willing, more than happy to invest in Spain, in Italy, in Southern Europe, in peripheral, Central and Eastern Europe, and so on and so forth. I would advise against that because, um, because there is still considerable macro risk in Europe. That's the one big difference, clearly, with the US. It's interesting what Brian has said, because we see the markets slightly differently. Much of what he said would apply to our trophy marketplace, where I totally would agree it's overpriced, it's expensive, use whatever word you like. There is still an opportunity at the sort of non-prime non institutional market, as I said earlier, and you're probably getting 150 basis points. Difference between in performance. Now, that may or may not be enough for some investors, but that's, that's where we are at the moment. On the opportunistic side, the real advantage of being in a region that lags the US is that we are still seeing the 20% returns. Okay? Now, here, the reason or the rationale for it is, I suppose, the coming together of a number of factors. One, there is still considerable distress in the system, which is slowly coming in and unwinding it, coming to the market. Point number two, the thing that we've noticed is that certainly since 2008, there has been a considerable shortfall of capex. Investors have not been investing in their assets. And real estate is a capital-intensive industry. Or landlords need to continue to invest in their assets or they begin to deteriorate. We have seen that shortfall develop and grow wider since 2008. But most important of all, it's not so much the level of distress or indeed that shortfall. It's the balance between the, the opportunity, the size of the opportunity, and the amount of capital that's chasing it. As of now, we would estimate that at that opportunistic end, the investment universe is probably 150 billion, very conservative estimate, 150 billion euros. Contrast that with the fact that if you take all the closed-ended funds targeting Europe, all the opportunistic funds targeting Europe, the total amount of equity in those funds is 40 billion. Now, if we leverage that 60%, that gives them a firepower of 70 billion or thereabouts. Contrast that with 150 billion 
opportunity. That's where investors are being overpaid for taking risk. It's just that we are, would be more comfortable taking asset level risk, the ability to re-gear release or, or re-let, rather than macro risk, which is still a great uncertainty in Europe. Switching gears a little bit to comment on the populist movement that we've seen globally with arguably its greatest effect in the US. Uh, Brian, would you like to kind of kick us off on what, what's been described as the Trump effect? Yeah, always fun, uh, <laughs> the Trump effect. I'd say, so a few things. I think that it is, A, a little bit unclear what policies that he's proposed are actually going to get passed, in part because he is not necessarily fully formed legislation to easily get through Congress. So that that's just one point I'd make. I'd say that the consensus certainly at J.P. Morgan, and I think sort of in general, is that the Trump trade is fundamentally, there'll be more growth. So there's a bit of a growth trade in the medium term, that there'll be more inflation. So it's reflationary and that there, it will be deregulatory. And I will just note that uh, that third point is actually the thing that the president can actually most readily uh, implement himself, which is just change regulation, even if it's just changing the emphasis of regulation. And I mentioned finance is an example of that. So that's sort of broadly the outlines of the Trump trade. And I think that what people are doing is that they're underwriting marginally more net operating income growth as a result. And I think that that's probably correct. I think a big question, though, is does the Trump trade make the expansion stronger and longer? I think it probably makes it stronger. I think it may actually make it shorter because we're more likely to have the Federal Reserve cut it off more quickly than if you had less growth. So net-net, I'm not sure that makes a huge difference. But again, I, I do accept that we're going to have more growth. I think that means a better leasing environment. And I think particularly for sectors like office, which have faced a regulatory burden, I think that the effects will be very direct and very large and very positive. In terms of the negative impacts, I think the biggest negative impact is that if you think about, particularly for the coastal, the, you know, the big five coastal markets in the U.S., a very large source of capital has obviously been offshore investors, um, with investors from Asia being a pretty big source of that. So to the extent that there is talk of or the actuality of a trade war, and to the extent that you have capital flows restricted, and I think we've already seen some of that, it does mean that on the margin, particularly for trophy real estate, you're going to see fewer bidders. And by the way, we, have, we are already seeing that. And that will certainly keep prices from moving up. And in some cases, and we've seen this as well, you can certainly see in bidding pools where pricing is substantially missing what uh, brokers thought would happen. So I think that's the biggest negative impact. I would just note as well, though, that you can't paint the whole U.S. with one brush. I think that that is very much concentrated in more trophy properties in the coastal markets, I think ironically, the place where you're not particularly at risk is sort of plain vanilla real estate through much of America, where the sources of capital are much more diverse and prosaic. So, you know, you give the example of, you know, you have apartments in Texas, those things at five caps really aren't that exposed to what happens to global capital flows. And you can take many examples in the US. So ironically, I think one of the defensive moves might be to look beyond those major six markets 
and look at the rest of the U.S., which I pointed out, has already sort of converged and give reasonable core opportunities at higher cap rates, in many cases, better NOI growth prospects. Well, thank you. I'm just going to focus a little bit on Europe now, because in Europe, we've obviously had seismic changes here in the UK. We've had a ripple effect throughout Europe. What impact does all this change have on the broader European market, but maybe touch on the UK firstly? Right. I think that if we take a step back, we don't know how this wave of populism will become translated in economic policy. We can guess, and I'm sure that everyone sitting around the table could actually come up with three or four or five different economic scenarios, all of which could would be relevant or true or what have you. What we can say without a shadow of a doubt now is that it leads to extreme risk aversion in the marketplace. It is that which has been so important in driving capital flows over the course of the last, well, really post-2012, 2013, certainly the opportunity again in Europe. And if it's that which drives the flow of capital going forwards, Um, I think we will get the same sort of opportunity arising as a result. We are already beginning to see this. If you look at how investors are looking to invest around Europe, we've seen capital gravitate away from Southern Europe into core European markets, into UK, France and Germany. It has gravitated away from or towards bigger cities as opposed to smaller markets. It has gravitated towards assets that have a tick in every single box. So for something to be core, it has to have a long lease, it has to be fully occupied, it has to have no risk whatsoever. So put it this way, if an asset, a good quality asset that has perhaps a 10-year lease as opposed to 11-year lease, or 5% vacancy, a wholly institutional asset in a good quality market, good quality location, that asset becomes mispriced into the secondary market. Suddenly, there is a yield spread of 150 stroke 200 basis points between the asset that has perceived risk and a stabilized asset. That allows investors to actually arbitrage that, that spread. That is basically the rationale of opportunistic investing in around Europe going forwards. In terms of UK, the most pronounced trend so far has been Everyone is sitting on the, on the sidelines so far as central London is concerned. There is concern that 30, 40, 50,000 jobs will go as a result of, of Brexit. No one knows, but that's the sort of estimate. If that happens, then you can certainly expect to see capital values falling by 25 to 30%. If that does happen, then I will become a buyer. And in Asia, Kenneth, I mean, there's a lot of activity. We had the Secretary of State in Asia, for the US Secretary of State this weekend, and it, interesting, there was a lot of activity in China and North Korea. Is the story in China or in Asia less populism and more kind of global tensions, South China Sea, global risk, etc., derailing a recovery story in Asian markets? I, I think in, in Asia, the, uh, situa- the situation is that it, it is less populism. Um, it's, it's unlike uh, what has been happening in uh, particularly in Europe and, and in the States. I think it's more localized, it's more potential issue between, you know, countries, uh, it's some part of the region, like, you know, as you mentioned, like Korea, China uh, is, is currently the hotspot. It's a South Sea situation between, like, you know, China and and Philippines is, is the other uh, kind of hotspot down, down in the south, southern part of, of Asia. 
But I think in general, I think the the economy here in in, um, in Asia is, or the situation in Asia is really like driven by the um, the economy. Uh, as we have seen in the past, we've always seen a lot of tensions happening. But you know, as as long as those situation is being contained in the region, I think we we have not seen a major disruption in any part of the uh, the economic or risk cycle. So we we're not you know uh, expecting this uh, to be a a major. Concern for the region. Um, of course, I think th- things will change. I mean, there's a, it's still a, a kind of a wild, wild card, you know, out there. Uh, I think you know what we are looking at or what they are tracking is really um, how the, um, the the structural shift of various economies, you know, is imposing on on the rest of the cycle. I think that is more of the uh, of the focus for for the, for the region. Okay, just to uh, wrap up here, perhaps each of you could comment on a contrarian play in your region. I, I think you know uh, most of the strategy here in Asia is uh, fa- fairly straightforward uh, right now. I think we, in general, I think most of the investment are look, still looking at like core investment and value add. Um, but if I have to name a field, I, I think the story will. I mean, to the contrarian uh, strategy is still um, on on China. Where the, the argument is that in China is slowing down. Uh, there's a lot of supply, you know, on, on the market in, in various sector, in office, in um, in retail. Logistic is kind of an uh, unknown because of, of the, the the vast of the uh, the of the geography, and it's it's difficult to tape. You know what's really actually happening in in logistics sector, but you know to to bet on I mean to, to be more contrarian in a way is is to really you know keep betting on the um uh, the opportunistic investment in development strategy for uh, for office in the second tier city, but the risk is like you know uh, relatively higher, and I think you know uh, likewise in the retail strategy for uh, in in, re- in the second tier cities. And Brian, in the U.S., uh, is there any contrarian play that you haven't mentioned? Uh, sure. L- let me just let me just sort of set the stage, though, by saying that I think it's important that investors have a strong view, not yield chase, um, in terms of trying to be contrarian. So we think that you really want to stay with the top twenty or twenty-five markets in the U.S., and there are a lot of them that have dynamic economies, that have population growth, um, and that have uh, vibrant industrial mixes. So in terms of contrarianism, I'll say something by sector and then by strategy. So I've already sort of mentioned my strategy contrarianism. I do think that there is a lot of core in a lot of that opportunity set that is underbid um, and that has reasonable going in returns and with better economic growth has uh, pretty strong uh, economic growth prospects. So that is ironically a bit of a contrarian play given where the capital is. In terms of sectors, you know, the strongest sector is very clearly industrial as you sort of have the e-commerce tra- trade. I'd say that um, I've mentioned a bit that some of the core office opportunity is interesting because you've had a real sort of disappointment in terms of leasing and NOI growth. But I'd say a more interesting contrarian play would be suburban apartments. So if you think about the US, we've had this great wave of urbanization, which, you know, obviously Europe has always had. And so you've had people, particularly young millennials moving to the cities. And it's been a great story, but it's been a bit overplayed. And if you look more recently, you've seen that suburban apartments where it's much harder to build have actually outperformed. And if you kind of think about those millennials having children, and the reality in the US being that schools in urban areas tend to be very bad. We think that that is a very interesting opportunity for investing in apartments that are in suburban locations with good schools and dynamic economies. We think you're going to get a very good risk-adjusted return over the next five to 10 years there. So that would be, I think, our highest conviction sort of contrarian play. 
That's interesting. Here in the European context, any contrarian markets or sectors? Yeah, the, the, the one I would add, um, which I've never historically been a, a great uh, um, supporter of, is retail warehousing in the UK. Um, for the last sort of 30 years, the sector as a whole has outperformed all others. It attracted enormous amounts of capital, certainly from uh, UK domestic institutions, but those domestic institutions, for whatever reason, have gone rather cool on the sector. Um, and I think that there is real value to be had in there for particular types of retail warehousing schemes, certainly those with the, the appropriate planning um, permission. I think that there is real value to be had in that particular sector. Well, great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for your comments today. Certainly one uh, takeaway I took with regards to core investing, which historically, when one thought of core, one thought of a concentrated market or sector. And what I've learned today is that global markets don't move in sync, uh, particularly with regards to real estate investing. So there is a great deal of value in diversifying first within a region, and then perhaps on a global basis, looking to international markets to cushion different cycles within other markets and also to seek out contrarian opportunities or more high-yielding opportunities where investors can get rewarded for taking on more, more risk. Thank you for your time today. This has been a great insight into core real estate investing. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us today on JP Morgan Insights. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. This episode was recorded on March 20th, 2017. The views contained herein are not to be taken as an advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction. Nor is it a commitment from JP Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield may not be a reliable guide to future performance. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the marketing name for the investment management businesses of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and their affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. In the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other EEA jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited.
In Singapore by JP Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited. Co-reg number 19760-1586-K. Or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited. Co-reg number 20112355-E. In Taiwan by JP Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan by JP Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, registration number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, number 330. In Korea by JP Morgan Asset Management Korea Company Limited. In Australia to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by JP Morgan Asset Management Australia Limited, ABN 5514-3832-080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil by Banco JP Morgan SA. In Canada for institutional clients' use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management Canada Incorporated, and in the United States by JP Morgan Distribution Services Incorporated and JP Morgan Institutional Investments Incorporated, both members of FINRA SIPC, and JP Morgan Investment Management Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2017, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.